And it is once again time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm your host, Robert Polly, And today we are going to finish what we started last week, an exploration of Einstein's greatest idea. That is, the theory of general relativity. It radically transformed our picture of space and time, and it provided a whole new foundation for understanding the structure of the universe. And by the way, you are going to be hearing a lot about general relativity in just a couple of years, because 2015 will be its 100th anniversary, and then everybody will be talking about it. But uh, you don't need to wait till then to celebrate it and learn about it, when you can do so right now, right here on the 7th Avenue Project. Just stay tuned. Okay, so on to general relativity for beginners, part two. And as was the case last week, our guide to Einstein's theory is going to be Anthony Aguirre. He's a professor of physics at UC Santa Cruz who teaches general relativity and who uses it in his own theoretical work on the evolution of the cosmos. In our first installment last week, we got an introduction to some of the basics of general relativity. We learned how Einstein proposed that space and time aren't really separate things, but are instead bound up together in a four-dimensional structure called space-time. And things with mass, like stars and planets, and even you and me, change the very shape of space-time, causing things to move differently. That effect is what's known as gravity, and it is not an attraction between objects. Sorry, Sir Isaac Newton, you were wrong about that. It is instead a change in the contours of space-time itself. So, when objects seem to be pulled together by gravity, they are not, in fact, being pulled. They're just following natural straight paths through space-time. If we humans could only see space-time, it would all be so much easier to understand. We can't, but we do have physicists and some great equations developed by Einstein and others that allow them to accurately describe those space-time effects. Anyway, if you missed part one of our series, you can go back and listen at your leisure on our website, at 7thAvenueProject.com, and uh, you don't even have to do that to enjoy Part 2 coming up. In this second installment of the series, we're going to be discussing some of the impacts of general relativity on the evolution of the cosmos, including the expansion of the universe and dark energy, and also some weird stuff predicted by general relativity, like gravity waves, black holes, and those cosmic conundrums known as singularities. And by the way, you're going to hear Anthony Aguirre mention the name Maxwell. That is James Clark Maxwell, the great 19th century physicist who worked out the theory of electromagnetism. So let's get to it. General relativity for the masses with physicist Anthony Aguirre. Well, Anthony, it's good to have you back. Thanks. It's good to be back. I want to ask something that I didn't really ever get to in the first part of our conversation. And that is, what is this thing then? we call space, or what is the thing that Einstein calls space-time? I call it a fabric. I said you can warp it. It's almost like it's a substance. It almost is like it's a substance. We've gone through a sort of evolution in our thinking about space-time. When, when Newton first thought of it, it was this really empty background structure. It was background in the sense that nothing could affect it. There was no effect on space-time by anything that was in it. Yet it had a whole bunch of properties because it, it sort of defined distances between things. It, there were sort of a, an absolute notion of when things were close together or far apart or widely separated in time. There was a, a universal notion of how fast the clock was ticking. And there was a universal notion of now, of all the things that are happening at a given moment in time. Well, it was kind of like an empty container with some precise measures applied to it. It, it was empty in the sense, yes, that, that there seems to be nothing to it. And yet, when you think about it, there's also a lot to it. Because if you think of what space-time is kind of representing, it's kind of this, as Einstein carefully thought about it, he realized that it's really thinking about kind of these rods and clocks. Like, you have this rigid system of measuring distances between things, like you might represent by the markings on a infinitely stiff steel rod, a ruler. Uh, a ruler. Yeah. Um, but, but one, you know, that, that nothing you do will ever affect the shape of the ruler or bend it or anything like that. And then all these clocks that are ticking along in perfect synchrony. And Einstein realized that there was kind of this complex structure to space-time and that we had been making assumptions about what that structure was like, that it was inviolable and, and had all this 
this perfect synchrony to it and so on. Right. But the fact that you can, again, bend it, that you can uh, change its shape, makes it feel less like an empty container and more like a substance, uh, a medium, some kind of fluid or something like that. I think so. And at some level, you can think of this structure of space-time still as kind of being reduced to, you know, how it affects the the bits of stuff inside it. But it does take on a life of its own. Um, One of the most interesting things that came out of general relativity was the realization that you could have waves in the structure of space-time, that if you if you take a big mass and just wiggle it back and forth, the structure of space-time then wiggles back and forth in the, in the vicinity of that mass. But by making that wiggling, you've also created a sort of wave, just like if you wiggle something back and forth in water, you, you set a wave going, and that wave propagates away from your wiggling mass. And in just the same way, if you wiggle a mass back and forth that distorts space-time, that distortion of space-time propagates away. And that mass can wiggle, you know, 100 light years from now, from, from here. And that wiggling space-time just keeps going. It doesn't require any mass doing anything. It's the actual structure of space-time that's carrying that wiggling across the galaxy to us. Uh, you know, like dropping a rock in water, uh, the waves ripple out. Uh, in the same way, uh, a mass, a change in mass somewhere in space-time sends ripples flowing out through this this medium out to you know to infinity that's right and and it it's taken a lot of getting our minds around because when when maxwell invented his equations and and showed that light was this uh wave that's in this electromagnetic field that at that point the electromagnetic magnetic field was this really abstract thing people thought well it's just a sort of shorthand for for how charged particles attract each other but what Maxwell realized was that this field had a life of its own, that it could it could have waves propagating in them, and that those waves are ones that we're super familiar with. Those are light. And in just the same way, we used to think of space-time as just this kind of abstract entity that things happen in. But Einstein realized that it's more like it's got this rich structure that that really can carry lots of information, that it can carry waves, it can carry signals, all kinds of things. Well, what changes and what waves in the case of electromagnetism is the electromagnetic field yes well what's waving in the case of space-time is it the space-time field you could call it the the gravitational field Uh in a sense or you could say that it's the the metric Um, so the metric is mathematically the metric is kind of this entity that sits at each point in space and tells you how you measure distances so it's it's a little bit like a field Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's something that it's sort of a mathematical, at least entity that, that pervades space, just like the electromagnetic field is a mathematical thing that pervades space. Um, there's a mathematical way of thinking about it and a physical way of thinking about it. The, the mathematical one is that you, you have this mathematical function that exists everywhere and there are kind of ripples in that function. Yeah. Um, the physical way is, you know, that that there's this substance that's really getting distorted, and that mm-hmm. distortion is propagating itself. So it is possible to think of it as a substance, in a way. I think it's not a bad way to think about it, yeah. Hmm. Now, Einstein announced his theory in 1915, 10 years after he had um, taken his first plunge into this way of thinking with special relativity in uh, 1905. Um, why did he call it general relativity? Well, it, it, it generalized special relativity in actually a couple of ways. One is that it included gravity as a relativistic force, a, a force to whom relativity applies. Mm-hmm. Um, so special relativity really took electromagnetism, Maxwell's equations, and brought them within the relativity that already existed in Newtonian mechanics and Galilean mechanics. And general relativity brought in gravity also. Another thing that general relativity does is it sort of talks about acceleration. So so in special relativity, velocity or, or speed is all relative. So you can't say how fast is something moving. You can only say how fast is something moving relative to something else. Right. Now, something that deeply bothered Einstein was he knew that that was the case. That was experimentally the case. Galileo knew it. Newton knew it. So we've all experienced the relativity of speed, like when we can't tell whether our train is moving or not. 
but we certainly can tell whether the train starts going, or if we hit the brake in the car, we know right away that we're that our car is decelerating. So we can feel it. We can feel it. So why can we feel it? If if velocity is relative, why is acceleration absolute? Why don't I have to say accelerating with respect to something? I just say I'm accelerating or I'm decelerating. There isn't I'm accelerating with respect to something. And that really bothered Einstein. Why why shouldn't I have to say what I'm accelerating with respect to? And part of his goal for general relativity was to generalize that also, to say acceleration is also relative. Uh-huh. And it's relative to what? Well, that's actually a, a, a tricky question. So, so Einstein, that was a motivation for Einstein, but it's still actually sort of an open question whether he accomplished that with general relativity. So he certainly did in part because one thing that he discovered was that acceleration wasn't absolute in the sense that acceleration could be sort of traded off for gravity. Gravity and acceleration were sort of two sides of the same coin. Right. We talked about that. Right. Now, what he didn't quite answer, but he wanted to answer was, what is acceleration with respect to? And one answer that he came up with was inspired by a, a philosopher around the turn of the 20th century called Ernst Mach. And Mach asked this question, you know, why is acceleration absolute? And he came up with the answer that, well, the only thing that it could really be measured against is sort of the universe. So perhaps when we say I'm accelerating, what I'm really saying is I'm accelerating with respect to the sort of rest of all the stuff in the universe that's defining the unaccelerated reference frame. And this is a sort of amazing thought to think that, you know, when we feel this peculiar force when we slam on the brakes in the car, that has something to do with the fact that we're accelerating with respect to, you know, distant galaxies or something. Everything. Everything. But if you don't think about it that way, then you're left with sort of, what are we accelerating with respect to? What is this weird uh, sort of absolute non-accelerated frame? Where would that come from? What would that be? Is it just something built into the fabric of the universe or, you know, who knows what it is? So that was the only answer that Mach could come up with that really made any sense to him. Um, and Einstein liked it as well. And to this day, Mach's idea is still the best idea out there? I think it is still the best idea out there, although there are still open and really interesting questions about exactly how general relativity brings that idea in and, and sort of makes it all work. Now, in, our, in the first half of our interview, uh, the one we aired in the previous show, we talked a little bit about real empirical evidence that Einstein's idea was correct. And uh, we talked about the GPS system and how it actually needs to factor in general relativity in order to take account of the different rates of clocks between us down on Earth and the clocks that are on those GPS satellites. Mm -hmm. If you don't take that into account, you get a really erroneous result. It just doesn't work at all. On I mean, GPS. Not, it's not just like a little error. It just doesn't work. But you said that even when those first GPS systems were being deployed, like maybe in the 60s or 70s, they were so uncertain of general relativity that they included the option of turning off that adjustment, of switching Einstein off, just in case he was wrong. Mm -hmm. now, it turns out he wasn't wrong about that. But people were still doubting uh, general relativity 50 years after he'd introduced it. And that came as a surprise to me because I thought that it was only a couple years after he introduced it that it got its first confirmation. Einstein was hailed as even more of a genius than people already thought he was. And uh, that was it. General relativity was established truth. Has it been proven? It has been proven insofar as scientific theories get proven. There's an enormous amount of nice evidence for it. There's a strange historical fact, I think, that relativity was invented. It was it was had these early tests. It was lauded as a, as a beautiful theory. And then nobody really did much with it for a while because everybody's focus turned to much more practical matters like how to win wars and things like that. <laughs> and so there was a long period of the 30s and 40s and 50s where people really weren't thinking about general relativity because it wasn't that practical. You know, until the GPS, there wasn't really any significant need to know general relativity if you wanted to do something. Is that right? Really? GPS was like the first practical application? It's probably the first time that the engineers who were actually building stuff that had to work right. were confronted with general relativity. Right. And you right. can imagine that they were a little bit uh, uneasy about you know, all these tensor equations and uh, you know curved space-time and so on. They, these are guys who like to just 
build working stuff. Right. Um, so there was a, probably a little bit of a culture clash there that, that was part of it. Yeah. But, I mean, a lot of other physics theories had no practical application for a very long time, and some still don't, and yet they were, you know, they be- became the bedrock of the way we thought about the cosmos and about reality. Well, I'm not sure to the extent of general relativity cause, because uh, special relativity even is important in a lot of things. Quantum mechanics is used all the time. Any any sort of device that we use nowadays relies intimately on quantum mechanics. So there were, in, in sort of cutting-edge technologies, um, special relativity quantum mechanics, certainly regular mechanics, were all used all the time. General relativity was a little bit of a... St- a standout in that sense. Oh. Well, are people still working on confirming it then? More people are looking for chinks in the armor. So so what you really want to do once you once you have a theory you like is you want to do everything you can to stress test it. You want to look for, for some little thing that it might get wrong. Right. And so it, it's not so much that people are looking to, to find another test where they say, oh, look, general relativity is right. Nobody cares. What's really interesting is if you find a test where you say, oh, look, general relativity may not be getting this right. Well, um, have people, for instance, detected those waves you mentioned a little while ago, gravity waves? Yes and no. There's an effort going on now to detect them directly. So this requires essentially measuring the fact that between two widely separated points, the, the distance, the spatial distance between them actually fluctuates a little bit. It oscillates because of this gravitational wave passing by. And there are detectors deployed now called the LIGO detectors. Um, And those have not detected gravitational waves yet, but they didn't really expect to. So this is one of the more expensive experiments you can build without expecting to detect anything. But it was built with upgrades in mind where they do expect to detect things. And that will be happening probably over the next five or 10 years. But in a sort of indirect way, we've detected these because um, we have detected what are called pulsars, very rapidly spinning ultra-dense stars that give off uh, radio waves. And what general relativity predicts is that because pulsars aren't perfectly spherical, as they spin around, they're kind of like a little, little wobbly thing that will generate gravitational waves. And you can calculate exactly how much energy should be given off in these gravitational waves. And as that energy is given off, it causes the pulsars spinning to slow down. So there's a beautiful prediction of the the way that a pulsar spinning should slow down over time. And it's been observed that uh, both back in the 60s, and this was awarded a Nobel Prize for Hulse and Taylor, but also lots of pulsars since then, you can you can verify perfectly that prediction of the energy that's taken away by gravitational waves. You can't see the waves themselves, but you can see the energy that they're carrying away from stuff. Oh, wow. You're reminding me of something else we talked about in the first part of our conversation uh, in the previous show, and that is that one of the things that was troubling Einstein after he thought of this very limited part of relativity called special relativity was the fact that gravity, as described by Newton, can exert its force across any distance instantaneously. So you had said that, you know, if you were shaking a bowling ball here on Earth and you had a very sensitive gravity detector on, say, Mercury, the surface of Mercury, in Newton's version, you could actually detect that motion instantaneously, right. uh, which violates Einstein's theory of special relativity. It says nothing can go faster than the speed of light. Nothing's instantaneous across space. Right. So what about gravity waves? So the gravity wave would be exactly fitting into that in the sense that if you wiggle back and forth your your bowling ball here on Earth, you create a little gravity wave. That gravity wave propagates to Mercury at the speed of light, and exactly what you're detecting would be the gravity wave. So So it's exactly the same experiment, except now you have an actual description of this wave that propagates from place to place at a particular fixed speed, the speed of light, and everything works out beautifully. Is it weird, though, that it just happens to be the same speed as light and other electromagnetic radiation, you know, be they microwaves, radio waves, gamma rays? Why would gravity waves travel at exactly the same speed? What special relativity really predicts is that not just light, but any particle or or 
physical thing that has no mass will travel at the speed of light. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't particularly, it doesn't really pick out photons. Those are particles of light. If you picked any particle, special relativity would say that it travels at the speed of light. If it has no mass. If, if, it it has, has no if mass. it has mass, it's going to go slower. Exactly. And the more mass it has, the slower it's going to go. Right. So, so the real question is why does, do gravitons, those would be sort of particles of gravity, why do they have no mass? And in some sense, that's, a, that's an experimental question. Um, they have no mass in general relativity. You, you can sort of show that if you think of gravity waves as, mass, as particles, that they are massless particles, you could invent a gravity theory where gravitons have mass. That and people have done that. Those theories don't seem to work and don't seem to give anything that that general relativity doesn't, and they you know predict wrong things. So they so they just empirically don't work. Um, but you could have them. Huh. And and did Einstein himself come up with the idea of gravitons? I, I mean, we were talking about a gravity wave as being a ripple spreading out through space time. But the idea that that's actually that ripple, in a sense, is communicated by carried by a particle called a graviton. No, because that the the connection between those two really is a quantum mechanical one. Uh huh. And quantum mechanics will tell you if you have some wavy like uh, phenomenon, often you will be able to think of it also as a particle in some sense. And and so if we think of gravitational waves, quantum mechanics tells us that we should be able to think of them in some sense as, as particles with a certain amount of energy to them. Now, we don't really know how quantum mechanics applies to gravity in detail, but we think that um, it should apply in, in roughly the same way to, to things like gravitational waves so that you can think of them as particles in that sense. Got it. And if they're massless particles, they will travel at the speed of light. Yeah. Now I want to ask this thing we call the speed of light, this one thing whose speed is not relative, that is fixed, that is this sort of yardstick for so many other things. Uh, speed limit, as you say, for massless particles. What is the speed of light? Why, why is it that way? What special relativity showed Einstein, once he worked it out, is that space and time are not these separate things, that they're really combined into one entity, this four-dimensional structure and that you could trade off space for time. And that trade-off has to come with a sort of conversion factor because we measure you know, space in inches and time in seconds or, or, or some other unit. So if you want to trade them, you have to have some conversion factor. How much space equals how much time? That's a good point because when we talked about space-time earlier and we said it's four-dimensional, I left the impression that you know, it's just a, it's just like a four-dimensional box. There's, there's an axis here for space that you measure in, say, inches or meters. There's another axis for the other, another direction of space. You do the same thing with another axis for another dimension of space. That's three dimensions of space, and and a fourth axis for time. But that axis is totally different. Right. <laughs> and and if you, if you think of space, you might say, well, there's the east-west axis and the north-south axis. Um, but we know that those are really kind of measuring the same sort of thing, space. Now, you might be momentarily confused if you're, you know, if one of them was measuring latitude and one was, one was measuring longitude, then it's much less clear, right? Because you can't just, say, trade a degree of longitude for a degree of latitude. You have to know where you are on Earth and so on. Yeah. So there's a conversion factor that changes from place to place. And, and space-time is kind of like that. If you want to trade time for space, you can do it, but you have to know the conversion factor. And that conversion factor is the speed of light. And so once you have kind of this converting possible between space and time, there's just one conversion factor. And once you've set what it is, that's what it is. So the speed of light is, in a sense, it's, it's sort of baked into the fundamental mathematics of space-time. Yeah. And so it almost the reason why a, a person like me asks this question, what is it? It's so strange. is because we're used to thinking of it as just speed, just the rate at which something travels, but it's something much more fundamental than that. Right. right. Wow. We could do an entire show on that, but we've got another <laughs> path to trod here. <laughs> now, you mentioned that general relativity wasn't considered practical, really, until problems like global positioning came up many years after, many decades after Einstein came out with the theory. But it certainly was practical to those people who wanted to consider big questions in cosmology. In fact, it got Einstein thinking right away about the shape and size of the universe. 
Right. So so it's very useful for cosmology, which is itself rather impractical. <laughs> <laughs> but but if you're a cosmologist, then you know, like I am, you know, general relativity is one of your prime tools. It's one of the most useful things you've got. So what did Einstein start to do with general relativity when it came to ideas about the whole cosmos? And by the way, this is 1915. I don't think galaxies beyond our own had even been discovered yet. So, I mean, the idea of the cosmos at that time was a much simpler idea than we have now. Yeah, well, well people have been thinking about cosmology for, for quite a while, but essentially just making it up because there was <laughs> absolutely nothing to go on. Um, yeah. And pe some people envisioned it as quite a small thing, some people infinite and kind of uniform, some people that it evolved, some people that it didn't evolve. So it was really just in philosophy. And moreover, science really couldn't even tackle it in that you couldn't even really apply Newton's gravity to something like a universe that was, say, infinite. Um, it, it simply didn't quite self-consistently tell you what happens to it. Well, well, as I understand it, Einstein started to wonder, as a result of general relativity, whether the universe was expanding or contracting. Yeah, so, so what he assumed was um, well, either for simplicity or for some deeper philosophical reason, let, let's assume that uh, the universe is more or less uniform on really large scales. Even though it looks very lumpy locally, um, let's assume that if we really kind of zoom out, that things look more smooth. And so let's just take kind of a, a infinite or, or a finite space that's filled uniformly with stuff and ask what happens to that. And Einstein could apply his equations to that. Newton couldn't, but Einstein really could. And what he found was, as you might expect, if you fill a universe with stuff that's just sitting there, that stuff attracts itself. And so what he found was that the scale of the universe, or, or its size, if it was finite, the scale wants to shrink. The universe, because of the attractive gravitational force, if you just set it up kind of static, it wants to start shrinking. So Einstein was imagining a universe, you say, that was finite and had sort of an equal distribution of stuff in it? Yes, he he could think about a universe that was finite or infinite, um, but the key thing that he wanted to assume was that the stuff was uniformly spread throughout it. Even though that's not true. Obviously, there's stars, there's galaxies, there's planets. It's lumpy. It's lumpy, and so you, you either have to appeal to laziness or some, <laughs> some point of principle, and for physicists, we we tend to turn our laziness into points of principle right, to, to make our lives easier. Well, at any rate, he said, what if it was, exactly. right? Exactly. And if it was, all this stuff would pull together and the universe would shrink. Right. And and so he said, well, the universe would collapse if it had this self-gravity. That can't be right. You know, the universe is here. It hasn't collapsed. It's been here forever. It, how, how could he it have lasted? He so. He had no idea of the Big exactly, Bang. Exactly. Yeah. So he said, well, I'd better fix this. This is a problem. My, my theory is telling me that the universe should have collapsed long ago. Um, so let me invent something that will fix this problem. And that thing was? So that thing was that he noticed that in his equations, he could introduce another mathematical term. He called it the, the cosmological term. And this is sort of a number that you can just stick into the equation. And if that number is positive, it corresponds to an anti-gravity force, an extra force that pushes things apart. A repulsion. Mm -hmm. Uh-huh. And he did that. I mean, he, he introduced what some people have called a fudge factor into his equations. How did he choose the number? He chose the number so that it would be the right number. So <laughs> he said, well, if you've got a certain amount of stuff, a certain density of stuff, if you choose this number, this cosmological term, to be just right, um, then this anti-gravity force will precisely balance the gravitational force, the, of the attractive force of the stuff, canceling them out and making the universe just sit there, being static and stable. That's if what he thought. He, if he was exactly right in guessing how the stuff was distributed... Well, there's a few things wrong with this, that some of which Einstein should have realized. Uh, the the one is the unpleasant thing that he had to choose the exact right number, you know, for the, <laughs> for the cosmological term. Um, even if you allow him that, though, what he really showed was not that the universe was stable, but just that it was static. So, so in particular, if you took his static universe and just kind of moved a little bit of stuff around or, or just made the universe just a tiny bit smaller or something then there'd be a runaway effect, a little bit smaller, and then it would get smaller and smaller and smaller, or bigger, get bigger and bigger and bigger, or lumpier here, the lumps would grow. 
So what he didn't show is that the universe was kind of robust. He just showed that for a moment it could just sit there. So his general relativity equations showed that space is really dynamic and depending on what's in it, it can really kind of collapse on itself or it can really spread out like pancake batter on a griddle, right? Yeah, and it's pretty hard to get it to do nothing. To get it to do nothing. He tried with this cosmological constant. Um, but then um, it wasn't that long after, right, that Edwin Hubble, the, the astronomer who had access to some good telescopes, um, discovered that not only were there galaxies beyond our own, but they seemed to be moving away from us. Right, right. And moving away faster the farther away they are. Right, which means expanding universe. It, that that is a natural inference. So if you if you think of a uniform medium um, that is expanding, that that is it's just sort of uniformly getting bigger, then if you pick a couple of points on it, you know, in a, in a certain amount of time, they will get a certain distance farther apart. If you pick points that are initially twice that distance apart, then as the universe expands, those get Apart the uh, <laughs> now, can I? I want to jump yeah. in here and invoke the bread loaf, the the dough, the dough. So yeah. if you got raisins, I know you're tired <laughs> of the loaf. raisin bread. But if you got you're making raisin bread and you got the dough with raisins embedded in it, and you let's say the, that loaf is expanding because of the yeast. Um, if you got two raisins that are right next to each other, they're going to spread apart a little bit. But if you've got a raisin in the center, let's say, and a raisin way out on the edge. There's there's more dough between them, and that dough is all expanding at a constant rate, and therefore, more dough means more expansion. I mean, more more distance created between them. And so Hubble just you know discovered that the farther away things were, the faster they seemed to be retreating in the distance, and uh, therefore we had an expanding universe. So Einstein, who had foolishly posited a static, unchanging universe, what did he do? Yeah, he well, he was uh, not so happy because he he had the opportunity to predict that the universe ought to be either expanding or contracting, not necessarily which one it would be doing, but but he his equations revealed to him that it couldn't really make sense for it to be static. Um so it ought to be expanding or contracting. He could have at least taken a 50-50 chance um or at least said that it was going to be doing one of those two, but he didn't. And so he he called this introduction of the cosmological term, the biggest blunder that he had ever made. And he dumped it. And he dumped it. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's um, fast forward 70 years or so to the late 20th century, the very end of the 20th century, when astronomers were again looking at the expansion of the universe at extremely distant stars and discovered that not only were they heading away from us but that the rate of expansion seemed to be increasing. And this is different from what Hubble had discovered, right? Right. Hubble said the rate of uh, expansion is constant, which means the farther away something is, the faster it's moving away. But they discovered that things are moving away even faster than that. The rate of expansion itself is speeding up. Right. So Hubble showed this relation between the distance of something and how fast it's moving away, and that's called Hubble's Law. And there's also a Hubble's constant in there that kind of relates the distance to the speed. And everybody thought that this Hubble's constant would be changing in time, and that happens because of the gravitational effect, the, the fact that if the universe is expanding, gravity is slowing down that expansion. So everyone expects this Hubble constant uh, to be changing. But what they found was that the change in the Hubble constant was is exactly the opposite of what they thought. They found that this expansion was speeding up as time went on, like there was an anti-gravity force, just like Einstein's cosmological constant, pushing everything in the universe apart. And it's come to be called dark energy, and in fact, uh, you know, it's one of the biggest discoveries in astrophysics over the last decade and a half or so. And uh, recently awarded the Nobel Prize. That's right. The, the three, three of the guys, three of the many who participated in that discovery got the Nobel Prize this past year in 2011. And I have heard that one way of looking at dark energy is to just say, Einstein was right in a sense that that there is some kind of constant perhaps in those equations that is causing things to fly apart. Where Einstein was wrong was his determination to preserve an idea of the static universe. But he wasn't wrong to introduce a, a factor into the equations. Exactly. His, his, so when people call it a fudge factor, it's a little 
unkind or unfair because it is a natural term to, to have in those equations. Um, so in some sense, if you just ask sort of what is the most natural set of, of equations that you can have for general relativity, they include that term. And then you can just ask, well, should that term be zero or should it have some value? And Einstein erred in picking that value with a particular agenda in mind. Exactly. He didn't wait to see the observations, right. you know, the evidence. But but there's no particular reason to think that it should be zero either. And and in fact, from particle physics, there are some good reasons to think that it shouldn't be zero. In fact, um, if you if you sort of imagine what this cosmological term represents, it, it represents energy that empty space has. Now, this sounds very strange to us because we, you know, we think energy is energy of stuff. And if it's empty space, there's no stuff. So there's no energy. But in fact, when you look at quantum mechanics or its sort of modern version of quantum field theory, it tells us that just the fact that you have the sort of potential to have an electron in a place means there's an electron field there. And the electron field can sort of carry energy with it or not. So even if there's no electron, um, you can still have the electron field and that might have energy. So quantum field theory tells us that there ought to be energy in empty space. The sort of uncomfortable truth is that if you ask how much energy there should be, the answer the quantum field theory comes back with is that it should be infinite. So it tells you there should be an infinite cosmological constant. So, so now, you know, we've got this number, it's undefined, it, its value should be somewhere between zero and infinity, right? <laughs> um, and, and so this has been giving physicists headaches for a long time, this, this cosmological constant. But, but now that they've discovered that the universe is expanding at an accelerating rate, i.e. dark energy, are they able to put a number on the cosmological constant that matches those observations? Well, we can assign a number to the cosmological constant that explains the observations nicely, but it doesn't tell us anything else. It, it sheds no light on the nature of that vacuum energy, where it's coming from, how we should think about vacuum energy, why particle physics gets it wrong or doesn't get it wrong, etc. It's very frustrating. It, it tells us there is this number, there is this force, um, but it's frustratingly silent on giving us any extra clues as to how to understand that force. Okay. But uh, it definitely redeems an idea that Einstein himself abandoned a long time ago. That's right. I mean, somewhat. It doesn't explain anything, but it's there. We're, we're pretty sure of that now. Yeah. I wanted to talk about some even freakier implications of general relativity, uh, freakier than dark energy, at least in my mind. Another thing we mentioned in the first part of our discussion, just very briefly when we were talking about GPS, is the fact that gravity, which is the warping of space-time, it's really geometry, it's a change in geometry, doesn't just affect space so that things start moving in new directions, but it affects time. It affects clocks. Yeah. So that the closer you are to a massive object, the slower a clock runs. Is that right? That's right, yeah. And so our clock is running slower than those very precise clocks on the GPS satellites out there in orbit, right? Right. And we have to factor that into our GPS calculations. Um, that's Is that called time dilation? That's the term for it, yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, we talked earlier about how um, I could make my clock run slower relative to yours if I took off in a rocket ship and accelerated and moved very fast through space. That's right. Right? And therefore, in a way, moved less through time than you do if you just sit here and wait for me. <laughs> now, what is, is, is this time dilation effect of gravity similar to that? It's pretty similar. So you can set up the same sort of thought experiment where you and I start out, we synchronize our clocks. Now I go up out into space. I can even do it slowly so we don't have to think about special relativity. I can just kind of creep my way up to, to high altitude and then sit there for a long time and creep my way down. And so now we can think about both of our paths through space-time. And we can ask how much time went by on our wristwatch when we took these two different paths through space-time. So two things come in. One is kind of the shape of the path, just as it did in special relativity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But now the space-time itself is all strange also. So, so you can certainly imagine that if I take two different paths and one of them is all hilly and you know one of them is nice and flat, that I also might have different distances along those paths between the same two points. And, sure. and there, it's sort of the same thing. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, 
Now, another thing that general relativity sort of predicts is black holes. Right. Um, Einstein himself didn't think of black holes, did he? He understood the Schwarzschild solution. Um, so this is the solution to Einstein's equations that tells you everything you really want to know about the, the sort of most basic kind of black hole. Um, this, is the, this is the solution that tells you how much a round body will change the space around it, the exactly. space-time around it. Exactly. And so from that you could say, well, if this round body were really heavy, you know, really, really heavy, it could do some pretty strange things to the space-time around it. Right. That's a black hole, right? Right. So you could almost on purely mathematical grounds say, you know, if something got really heavy, it might create something that, that acted like what we now call a black hole. And, and in fact, black holes had been thought of even uh, centuries before by Laplace, um, who, who reasoned light has some finite speed, he imagined. He didn't know what it was, but he imagined that it had some finite speed. And he said, if you have something like the Earth that, that something is trying to get away from, you know, when we, when we shoot up a rocket ship, it has to hit escape velocity. Otherwise, it falls back to Earth. Otherwise, it just falls back. So if you take an object and crunch it down and keep its mass the same, its escape velocity goes up. And he thought, well, if I crunch something down big enough so that its escape velocity reaches the speed of light, then light will never escape from this thing. It will be totally black. Laplace thought of that in the 18th or 19th century. I can't Eight, remember. 18th, I think. 18th century. That's amazing. Some he smart had... guys back then. Oh, my God. I mean, he didn't have access to general relativity. He didn't know anything about light. But he said if an object's heavy enough such that the escape velocity, that is the velocity needed for an object to escape its gravitational pull, was equal to the speed of light, then even light couldn't get away. Right. So that's sort of the idea of a black hole. Right. But later in the 20th century, after general relativity, people applied those Schwarzschild exactly. is that how it's pronounced? Yeah. equations and, and said, whoa, this thing could exist. In fact, it could exist if, for instance, a star collapsed, right, and right. got really heavy. Right. And they were right. I mean, we've discovered black holes. They're out there. They're out there. Wow. And and so what briefly, no, you know, based on what we've already said about general relativity, our our very basic introduction to this theory, mm. what is a black hole due to space-time? In simplest terms, I suppose a black hole distorts space-time so that even when light is traveling directly away from this object. So you you you're close to this thing, you fire light directly away, the light nevertheless goes towards the object. That's how severe the distortion of space-time is. Would it be permissible to go back to that classic diagram of uh, what a massive object does to space, creating this sort of hole in space, this well or funnel, and say, if it was massive enough, it would actually cause space-time to fold in on itself so that all the trajectories curve back into this object? A little bit. Maybe a, even a better analogy might be to think of, um, suppose you had your rubber sheet. Yeah. Um, but By but the way, I don't need them anymore. <laughs> suppose suppose you, you've got your rubber sheet, but it's an infinitely stretchable one. So you throw a bowling ball into it, and it, it just keeps stretching and stretching and stretching and stretching. So, you know, bye-bye to the bowling ball, and you've got this kind of infinitely deep hole yeah. with all the stretching. Now you're an ant trying to crawl out of this hole. Mm -hmm. So if you know if you can't crawl fast enough, then the the sheet is going to stretch faster than you can crawl along it, and so you're never going to get out of the hole because it, you know you, you're just you're making progress relative to the sheet where you are, but the sheet where you are is moving away from the the throat, you know, too fast. So you know you're just never going to get out. I got it. I got it. You know, like going up a down escalator that's just going faster and faster and faster. Or or, or just going faster than you can climb up it. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. right. Um, so that's a black hole. And what about this thing that's down there in the black hole called a singularity? Yeah. That's yeah. a general relativistic idea, right? It is. And and what's really interesting about a black hole is what happens with space and time. So, so when you think of a star, say— um, it's, you know, it's a ball. It's got a center, which you might call radius zero, mm -hmm. right? And, and if you go to radius zero, there's, it's just a place, right? Now, when you form a black hole, things get kind of twisted around. So when you, once you go inside the so-called event horizon of the black hole, the point of no return, space and time kind of switch places a little bit. So 
what what you find is that in just the same way as you you know in in normal space you sit around and you go towards greater and greater times you know there's nothing you can do you know you go toward the future Mm -hmm. once you go into a black hole you go towards smaller and smaller radius in just the same way so so you can't avoid a smaller radius in just the same way that you can't avoid five minutes from now you know struggle as you might you're you're going to get to five minutes from now um in the same way once you go into a black hole you can't avoid radius zero it's just there basically all over your future so radius zero becomes a time in your future that you cannot avoid now what happens at that time that's really the way to think about it what happens Mm -hmm. at that time is that the laws of physics just break down general relativity breaks down it says the curvature of space-time is infinite once you get to that time Um, it also tells you that as you approach that that time the the tidal forces these are the forces caused by the fact that your head is its uh larger radius than your feet so your feet feel more attraction than your head that kind of tends to stretch you out there's also a tidal force that squishes you laterally those tidal forces get to be infinite in strength also so so you get sort of turned into yucky spaghetti um at some point as it turns out it's about it's about 0.1 seconds before you hit the singularity you get you get all stretched out, um, and then it all just kind of breaks down. Everything's infinite. What's it mean to say everything breaks down? It's all infinite. Well, one way to think of it is is simply that all those nice functions that went into that equation that I showed you the the metric and the curvature and the that uh, energy momentum tensor that's the thing that describes how much stuff there is. Um, all of those quantities literally become infinite. Um, as you approach that that time, r equals zero. Does that mean because they're infinite, we don't understand them and we can't make sense of them? Or does that mean the laws of physics themselves end in a way? Well, we we think that it probably means that that's the place where you have to supplant general relativity with some other theory that can, that can tame those infinities and tell you what actually happens there. So... Most people, I think, nowadays believe that there is a a theory waiting to be understood, quantum gravity, which includes both quantum mechanics and general relativity, and would apply at those regions where general relativity formally breaks down and tell us, well, it doesn't, you know, these things aren't really infinite. Really, their quantum mechanics steps in and makes them finite with some really large value, and then some weird thing happens at this place that we used to call the singularity. Mm. Yeah, now quantum gravity is the idea of reconciling general relativity and quantum mechanics, right? Mm-hmm. Which has never been successfully done, although string theory is maybe the grandest attempt to do so, right? That's right. Are you a string theorist? Not really, no. Do you I mean, believe it, in it? I try not to believe in things so much as, <laughs> as try to understand them and then you know weigh the evidence for them. Um, so, so I think it's true that I think that string theory is a theory of quantum gravity. The real question is whether it, a whether it's the theory of quantum gravity, and also what does it actually tell us. Um, so there are things that we'd like to know from quantum gravity, like what happens at a black hole singularity, that string theory kind of tells us a little bit about, and then things that it doesn't tell us anything about, frustratingly, like what happens at the Big Bang, another sort of cosmo, another sort of singularity. Um, so string theory, you know, is a theory of quantum gravity. It's it, it still has a lot of questions it doesn't answer. It still has a lot of issues and, and sort of development that I think we would have to go through to have a full theory of string theory. It's not really totally clear what string theory is. Mm-hmm, as a theory. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So I think the jury's still out on whether, whether one should believe it or not, uh, you know, as compared to, say, general relativity. And the only time you really need to to worry about this problem that general relativity seems to break down is in these incredibly extreme circumstances, a singularity at the center of a black hole Mm -hmm. and a singularity that may have existed at the time of the Big Bang, right? Right. Uh, Those are the places where it breaks down. Those are the only two that we know of. Those are the – there are lots of – 
you know, solutions you can find to general relativity that have singularities in them. But those are the, the kinds of singularities that we think actually exist in the universe. But, but you said even string theory doesn't help us with what happened uh, prior to leading up to the singularity at the time of the Big Bang. As it turns out, string theory is, is hard to apply to singularities that happen in a sort of time-dependent way. So so a black hole is kind of a static thing sitting there, mm -hmm. and it has a singularity th that string theory is a little bit better at dealing with than mm. the cosmological. Any, if you have a, a singularity in cosmology, it's it's something that's evolving, mm -hmm. and, and string theory has a hard time with that presently. Wow. Um, well... Anthony, I think you've taken me to the, to the very limits of general relativity, so that's a, a nice place to wrap up our conversation. I wanted to, before you go, uh, ask you a little bit about your experience of general relativity. You learned about it at what point in your life? I guess, you know, I read a lot of books that that talked about it in sort of the way that we've been talking about it today that are tantalizing, um, but, you, you know, you're still only getting part of the picture. Um, I started to learn about it mathematically in college um, and then in graduate school and through research. And, you know, here I am now teaching it in college. Um, still don't totally understand it. What parts don't you feel like you understand? Well, it's a, it's what's great about it is that although it's in some ways a beautifully elegant and simple and self-contained subject, it's got an enormous amount of depth to it. Like, for example, this this question we talked about earlier, Mach's principle, you know, where does, what are we accelerating with respect to? Mm -hmm. We still don't really know. We still don't really know exactly how general relativity and cosmology come together to, you know, ex answer that question. Even though we understand cosmology and general relativity both pretty well, there are these really subtle questions. And that, that's part of what really excites me about the subject. Hmm. You know, uh, some people have referred to uh, Darwin's idea of evolution by natural selection as the best damned idea anyone ever had. Mm -hmm. Would you say uh, general relativity uh, is in the running for that for that uh, designation? It, it's a little bit different. What what the what I've heard, how I've heard it expressed, which I think I agree with, is that it is one of the most amazing intellectual feats ever accomplished by a person. The the synthesis, the creation of general relativity, the kind of just mental gymnastics and subtlety of thinking and and sort of creativity that went into formulating this whole new way of looking at things that is so strange and yet true that that, that was really a stupendous feat. By Mr. Einstein. By Mr. Einstein. <laughs> Thank you, Anthony. Thanks a lot. It's been a pleasure. And that, my friends, almost concludes our intro to Einstein's theory of general relativity with the physicist and cosmologist Anthony Aguirre. I say almost because I could not resist asking Anthony a few more follow-up questions, which I suspect might have also occurred to some of you listeners. I'm going to be posting those questions and the answers on our website, 7thAvenueProject.com. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm your host, Robert Polly. I'll be back next week.